0: Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clinton. And you're listening to Birdseye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles or Birdseye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe and what you can expect from this show and our other shows insight and focus. Anyways, that aside, we'll go ahead and get started. But this state of feeling must fade, is fading, has faded with the circumstances that produced it. I mean the powerful influence which the interesting scenes of the revolution had upon the passions of the people. I do not mean to say that the scenes of the revolution are now or ever will be entirely forgotten, but that like everything else, they must fade upon the memory of the world, and grow more and more dim by the lapse of time. In history, we hope, they will be read of and recounted, so long as the Bible shall be read. But even granting that they will, their influence cannot be what it heretofore has been. Even then they cannot be so universally known, nor so vividly felt, as they were by the generation just gone to rest." At the close of that struggle, nearly every adult male had been a participator in some of its scenes. The consequence was that of those scenes, in the form of a husband, a father, a son or brother, a living history was to be found in every family. A history bearing the indubitable testimonies of its own authenticity, in the limbs mangled, in the scars of wounds received, in the midst of the very scenes related— A history, too, that could be read and understood alike by all, the wise and the ignorant, the learned and the unlearned. But those histories are gone. They can be read no more forever. They were a fortress of strength. But what invading foemen could never do, the silent artillery of time has done, the leveling of its walls. They are gone. They were a forest of giant oaks, But the all-resistless hurricane has swept over them and left only here and there a lonely trunk, despoiled of its verdure, shorn of its foliage, unshading and unshaded, to murmur in a few gentle breezes and to combat with its mutilated limbs a few more ruder
1: storms than to sink and be no more. What you just heard is an excerpt from Abraham Lincoln's speech to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, delivered on January 27th, 1838, so 22, 23 years before the onset of the Civil War, before Lincoln, well before Lincoln became president. And it's going to be relevant to our conversation today of American political myth. In the last episode of Bird's Eye, Philip and I discussed sort of generally The role of myth in political life if you haven't listened to it you should definitely go back and listen i think it was a really interesting conversation and this episode is going to make a lot more sense if you've heard that one right we're going to be building on sort of those themes and zeroing in on american myths in particular but if you have listened to it just a quick recap we sort of discussed how myths do play a prominent role in political life by sort of unifying the individual's sense of his or her own good with a sense of the communal good and how that makes social cooperation easier, perhaps, or facilitates social cooperation and sort of serves to imbue political life with a sense of elevated meaning, potentially also to obscure the immoral or merely artificial origins of a political community. And, you know, highlighted some things that maybe myth is is good for, right? And I think you can see that in sort of that little recap. We also discussed maybe some, some problems or uncomfortable realities of myth is that it has this tendency perhaps to produce very strong in-group, out-group dynamics which can lead to real cruelty perhaps towards those in the out-group. Yeah. And that... tends to tends to justify these things. It doesn't, you know,
0: by nature generally lead to them, but it offers a justification rationalization for... Sure. Right. All kinds of brutality exactly. that are usually undertaken for practical reasons. Exactly.
1: And also I think that in perhaps obscuring the immoral foundations or the you know foundations in crime of a society it may generate new problems as perhaps those crimes may be brought to light and i think that sort of flows nicely into what we're dealing with today which is the american story which i think we all know from our education and you know high school and 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 before has some really shameful aspects to it And that, I think, is is the relevance today, is what happens when these myths, which may have these beneficial effects, right, of of inducing social cooperation, come up against sort of these lived experiences of people who were marginalized in, you know, in the past. And, you know, what happens when these myths become challenged? And perhaps these challenges are important and useful, but there's also this effect of perhaps interrupting social cohesion, and we sort of want to explore that tension.
0: Yeah, well, and we talked about also in the last episode how Myths generally are formed through war, through periods of war and conflict. So another big question of this episode is going to be, how do you deal with criticisms of myth? What are your options? Creating new myths... To accommodate them, or can you do something else to avoid the kind of conflict, internal or external, that's going to require? So just for example, the, the, the main challenge that we're going to be talking about today that probably you've heard of, but if you haven't, we'll
1: sort of explain what it is, of course, but is the 1619 Project, which was... 1619 was the year that the first Africans were kidnapped off the coast of Africa and brought to the shores of the United States. I mean, so the project, which was undertaken largely by black journalists and writers, was to explore what would it mean for us if 1619 was the true year of our founding? What if slavery and anti-black racism were the true foundation of American political life, as opposed to, for example, the myth of the declaration that all men are created equal?
0: So obviously, the 1619 Project, if you've you've probably heard of it, if you haven't, well, that's sort of the basics of it. We'll talk about it more. But the point is that this topic, besides the fact that myth is always relevant in political life, as we talked about in the last episode, The prevalence of the 1619 Project and other things like it, criticisms and critiques of the traditional American myth, illustrate how important this topic is to discuss and understand right now. So that's the relevance. Mm -hmm. And it's worth asking because a lot of people, a lot of commentators, pundits, journalists, things like that, have written about how this is sort of a unique moment in American history that these myths are being challenged. Right. And some people have written some, some more conservative thinkers and writers have written very critically of that saying, this is very bad for America to Mm -hmm. challenge these myths. We need this myth of the American founding and to try to undermine it with with what the 1619 project is doing is going to be bad for America. But so it's worth asking besides besides the question of, is it bad for America? We're going to get to that, those, those critiques of the 1619 Project and the defenses of the tr- traditional American myth. But it's worth asking, is this a unique moment in American history? Mm-hmm. Or have we undergone periods of revision and change in our mythology and the way we define ourselves as a country? So to get at this
1: question of, What is the history of American mythology? Has it changed? We we read this very good book called After Nationalism, subtitled Being American in an Age of Division by Samuel Goldman, who's a professor of political science at George Washington University. And he's the uh, executive director at the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom there. And he's written a book. He's a conservative, but he's written a book that is sort of skeptical of The possibility of American myth, which I actually think is very interesting because typically, right, as Philip noted, conservatives tend to be strong defenders of these sort of narratives that they believe, right, imbue us with freedom and purpose and all those kinds of things. But he's skeptical of it and he goes through what he views as sort of three main major myths of american political life which are very interesting and recognizable in some senses perhaps alien to us in some others which goes to philip's point about perhaps revision and reinterpretation and it's a very nice neat history short book recommend reading it yeah um, you could
0: read it in a few hours honestly
1: right very accessible and i think very educational yeah so we're going to sort if of feel like if,
0: if, if you like this
1: discussion in the last episode you'll definitely enjoy the book no mm-hmm. question about right. it right so we're going to go through sort of his the history that he catalogs of American myths and sort of talk about what those mean for our current moment, how they can help illuminate our current moment where we see these challenges going on. And yeah, I think we can just sort of jump in from there, right? Yeah. So he has these
0: three main myths, the three C's, the three C's covenant, crucible and creed. These are the three main myths that he talks about. And those are organized more or less chronologically through through American history, but the important thing to note is that they coexisted with each other at different periods of time. Mm-hmm. There's definitely um, overlap. There's definitely overlap, and some might be really outdated. Some might still persist today along with others. But the first covenant is the oldest American myth, and it's the one. It's one that we talked about in the last episode a little bit. It's the Myth that came with the first European settlers, English colonists, and so forth to the New England region, which was the myth that these colonists were modern counterparts to the tribes of Israel, right. to Abraham and others. They were a chosen people who were delivered from God a promised land. Right. Uh, this new continent where they could have religious freedom and they could build this city shining this shining city upon a hill right that's john winthrop would, yeah which would be a symbol of virtue religious virtue and purity and things like this mm-hmm. so that's that's the oldest myth but that probably doesn't sound like a myth that you think of when you think of what is america right,
1: right. well i would say that we all probably think of perhaps the Puritans who settled as being right as being kind of like that right that they have this very close relationship to God, the uh, certain ideas of, of Calvinism predestination you know. Protestant, mostly coming from Britain. But it's also interesting to note, I think, that it was very pervasive, even in the American early Republic, right? So as much as we think of, and we'll get into this more later, is the Declaration as sort of the foundational myth of of American, you know, political life that coexisted, and perhaps was even subordinate to this sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant identity that dominated, I think, again, even in the early Republic, I'm just going to read something that's quoted by Goldman in his book from the Federalist paper number two, written by John Jay, where he writes, Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country to one united people. People descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs, and who, by their joint councils, arms and efforts fighting side by side throughout a long and bloody war, have nobly established general liberty and independence. And it's very interesting because he presents these new United States as being constituted in a particular place by a particular people, not as by sort of an idea or by a diversity of people, but by a particular people united by their ancestry, by their blood, and in this specific land given to them by divine providence. And surely you're starting to ask yourself, well, what about the people who are there first? And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think that it's interesting and important because that's not what, as Philip is saying, not necessarily what we recognize as being our myths. Right. Um, so it's very different. And that should tell you, that should, you know, give us some, some guidance going forward that, you know, those myths, those, those stories that, that the early American Republic told itself about its origins are different than the ones we tell ourselves today very different than the ones that we tell myth ourselves the myth
0: changes and has changed in in the u.s as just as in every other political community that's ever existed even
1: though the myth i think it is unrecognizable right but i think what's interesting is that there is still right there's some there are some through lines right so we can see perhaps even as those early periods which look different we do see through lines right i think you can see one that self-government developed much more strongly in the New England area, for example, than in the South, local institutions of self-government democracy, which were conditional on participation in the church, but, which is something that's very different, but that it developed, I think, more strongly in the New England area, and perhaps a more egalitarian social structure than in the South. But also, I think we see a very strong sense of nativism, this idea that it was essentially white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Today we still have, we call them WASPs, although its hold over the American story is certainly diluted. But we see the strong nativism, right? And so that maybe goes a little bit back to our discussions of in-groups and out-groups in the last episode, that these have a very pervasive effect over, you know, how, myths function in a political society so we have these very unrecognizable features the strong role of religion the very very powerful identity around religion as being perhaps more important than the declaration political Um,
0: philosophical
1: principles yeah exactly so it's worth noting certain through lines but the fact that it's quite unrecognizable to us gives us our first hint our first inkling of the ways that myth changes and are reinterpreted over time right Right. And so from there, you might ask,
0: why is this myth no longer relevant or prevalent? And when did it seem to start to fade out of importance? And what sort of myths took their place? Did we go straight from there to, well, I guess we got the declaration. Did we go straight to a belief in the declaration and universalism and liberal rights and things like this? According to Goldman, no. Before really that, myth took center stage in American political life, you saw the emergence of the crucible or the melting pot mythology of America. This idea that you went from singular, distinct people defined by a particular ethnic and religious heritage to, at a certain point, you've got more immigrants coming in to right. the U S from other places in Europe that aren't England. And so right. this, this narrative of a chosen particular religious and ethnic people started to break down in the face of these changes to the society. And so you see the emergence of this myth, which attempts to adapt to that changing reality, this right. melting pot right. idea.
1: Right. And you see that the, the, the proponents of the covenantal myth really try and you know, tamp that down. There were yeah. fights over. I I wrote a focus that you should read, please, about about uh, <laughs> American be, education policy it'll and be the way linked that, in the show notes. Yeah, it'll be linked in the show notes about American education policy and how Protestants in uh, the state of New York were very angry about the idea of teaching any sort of Catholic ideals in the schools. They were afraid that the Pope was going to come to like dominate American politics somehow. Yep. Right, so you see that there's this existential fear about you know the myth falling apart by the dominant class but also that it doesn't gel with the lived reality of those new people immigrants from other parts of europe who might have been catholic and so you see that the myth has to change and has to change in order to sort of bring them into the american story and a big part of that actually involved sort of the westward expansion of the united states because essentially they needed to Go somewhere a lot of them made their homes in 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 cities but they also a lot of them moved moved out west in the frontier and so that you know that expansionary aspect of it one contributed to the continued genocide of natives as 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 americans moved out along the frontier and that's i think important to remember right again that in group out group you know as the myth starts mm-hmm. of starts to take them in it also crowds out others and that is perhaps one of the more detrimental aspects of the way that myths work but that it had this expansionary quality that people could go out you know west and that and that america would become one people from from sea to shining sea would we'll become one people out of all these different types of groups. And again as as well right you also see this in-group out-group continuing to to be pervasive because out of these sort of many different european groups you get i think a fairly strong emergence of a white cultural identity, the social construction of whiteness, I think, really emerges. All these Europeans become Mm -hmm. explicitly white, juxtaposed against enslaved Africans in the South, and also Asian immigrants coming, right, as we sort of expanded out West, Asian immigrants coming to the, the West Coast of the United States. And in some ways, the myth faced a lot of challenges because the experiences of non-white immigrants; those non-white immigrants were frequently not accepted into the melting pot. They were viewed. I right. mean, Goldman talks about how they were viewed. They were viewed as like corruptive to the alloy that would come out of the melting pot, right? The, right. the perfect American, you know, melting pot, whatever metal that would be. They were <laughs> corruptive to it. Yeah, and that's how they were seen. And so you see the failure. It was. As it, was of,
0: it was more of a. It was more of a fondue pot than a crucible there you go
1: (laughs) so you see that that there's that there there becomes a problem even for this myth right that it doesn't match up to the lived experiences of non-white americans because they were not able to participate fully in that sort of melting pot experience and so again you see as the myth doesn't match up to people's lived realities it faces severe challenges
0: I'm sure that any of you listeners are familiar with that melting pot myth, and it still persists to some extent today. I think when mo- mo- most times when people invoke it today, it's not the fondue pot, but a more inclusive melting right. pot. And you, the, idea America
1: that, was built by immigrants, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which is in some ways true, but I think also kind of obfuscates a little bit the reality that not everyone was accepted equally right. into this melting pot.
0: So that's probably familiar to a lot of you, but but it's not the principal myth that most of us think of when we think of the American myth. Right. principal myth we think of is what Goldman calls the creed, which is the myth that America is a nation founded on and composed of the ideas enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, okay. the inalienable rights and equality of all people. And I think... That is the myth that we see being challenged a lot today. People looking back at our history and saying, hold on, wait a minute. Right. There were lots of periods where that was not true. And it was, it's not simply the case that American history is a steady march in that direction. And also, the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, like Thomas Jefferson held lots of slaves, were right. hypocrites. Yeah. And so that's the, the, the 1619 Project and other modern critiques of the myth are are critiquing that myth in particular. And so when we think about the two other major myths of American history and the fact that they've changed in response to different kinds of challenges and changing circumstances, it's worth pointing out here that this challenge being posed to what we think of as the Central American myth, one, that Central American myth is not as old as we like to think it is.
1: I would say that it has been present nonetheless throughout from the you know early Republic to today. It may not have had the same emphasis that it had. Right. I think Goldman really identifies the post-war era, 1945 to 1965, as sort of the, the heyday of, of the creedal myth, right, when it really came to define us. But I think you can see that yeah. when the founders were writing the Declaration, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, they understood themselves to be doing something Radically different than what had been done before, and throughout, right, we see the Civil War and Lincoln's Lincoln's speeches and his political thought that, that that this sort of American creed was was defining Frederick Douglass as well. I think was someone who was a proponent of this sort of creedal myth that it's the that it's the ideas, the rights and liberties that we are promised that constitute yeah. the, the genuine American political yeah. order.
0: and I think it's it's important to note that it came to particular relevance in the post-war and in the World War II period because that explains in some ways the shift to it from right. the melting pot, because suddenly America is thrown into a global conflict principally against an ideology of fascism. And then after world war II is thrown into the cold war, which is principally a war with an ID with the ideology of communism or Stalinism. Right. And so the situation that America was in, in that period was conducive to a self-definition that was grounded in philosophical or political or ideological tenets because everything pointed to that being defining because our conflicts externally were composed of conflicts with other ideologies. And so it made sense that we would define ourselves based on that philosophy and that that political feeling and thinking. So... That's important to point out because if you look back at all three of these major myths, why did they come about? Why were they challenged? Why were they in some cases abandoned? Because of material circumstances in the context in the context of reality that people were living through. Right. In the case of the Covenant, more immigrants and the need for expansion meant that it wasn't tenable anymore. It got abandoned. In the case of the crucible, you know, the entrance into new kinds of conflict on the world stage meant that it didn't make sense very much anymore. And then today we got to point out one, obviously challenges and new myths are not new. This is not a unique moment in American history that what we think of as the central myth is coming under challenge. And then two, it's worth asking how, those previous myths and the way that they faded out of obscurity, the reasons that they were challenged and the reasons that we got new myths point to an answer as to why we're seeing these kinds of challenges like the 1619 Project mm-hmm. come against the American myth.
1: Right. So I think if you look at sort of the, the creedal myth in its heyday, right? a big part of the reason why we had you know movement on issues of civil rights for example was because because of these ideological conflicts because America couldn't be seen as a hypocrite on the world stage if it had a brutal racial caste system at home and because of you know demands for recognition from within those marginalized groups that emerged during the you know 50s and 60s which challenged sort of the Jim Crow and, and, and and you know, brought a lot of progress on that front, not a complete progress, and we'll talk about that in a second, right? But you see that that as those sort of inflection points happen, there do come these challenges and that, you know, as we sort of define ourselves against other people in the world, again, looking towards that in-group, out-group dynamic, it sort of reshapes the way that we envision ourselves. And so there are certain changes that need to be made to make the creedal myth realizable in and make it match with people's lived reality without necessarily trying to tamp down or suppress those dimensions of it, which did not conform, right? I mean, I think you can look at the dominance of the creedal myth as being something that perhaps one challenge to it, one challenge we're seeing today is that we sort of lied to ourselves about what the creedal myth really is and whether or not it's actually true, whether or not it is that we've always been defined by these ideals or not, because lived experiences have not matched up with what the myth seems to promise us what that Mm -hmm. narrative seems to promise us and And,
0: in that way the challenge is a little different from previous challenges to previous myths right reality not matching up with the narrative Mm -hmm. and people say hold on wait a second this doesn't make sense this isn't true because yes myths have elements of untruth in them and elements of fiction and narrative and things like this they tell us stories but I think one of the definitions, one of the points of the definitions that we highlighted in the last episode is that myths explain things that are accepted to be true. And if reality is totally out of line with what a myth says or explains, people are going to see that, right. right? Right. And it's not going to be accepted to be true anymore. And then the myth is going to not make sense right? or be accepted or believed,
1: yeah, right? Or right. trusted. Right. And so I think that in a lot of ways is, you know, the 1619 project is an an indictment of the fact that those myths have not lined up with reality. Specifically for this episode, we're going to focus on sort of the introductory essay to the 1619 project by Nicole Hannah Jones, Mm -hmm. who was the one who sort of, you know, put together the project and, and was the sort of curator of all of the stuff. She writes about how not only have black Americans been the subject of historical discrimination and institutional racism, but also that their contributions to American democracy have been overlooked, right? The resistance efforts against slavery, right? The demands for recognition in the civil rights movement, which in a lot of ways made American democracy more democratic by demanding that all of those parts of society, which had been previously denied participation by by ensuring that they actually achieved it, right? To whatever extent. So what you see in in that That being the central critique that the 1619
0: Project levels, what you can see is that there is, among those who participated in the 1619 Project, among those who view it as legitimate and valid criticism, a degree of disbelief in the American myth.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the the other instances in our history when myths have been criticized, abandoned, or modified... The common thread, as we've laid out, is that reality no longer lines up. And the way you can tell that reality no longer lines up is that people stop believing in the myth. Right. So what the 1619 Project suggests is that to a lot of people, reality doesn't seem to line up with the myth. Right. Right? So that's the important takeaway. You know, there are all kinds of intellectual and historical Lessons to be taken from the 1619 Project, but as a broad lesson, you can think about it this way. The fact that it exists, the fact that people agree with it, the fact that people think it's important is evidence of the fact that people don't see the myth as aligning with reality anymore, perhaps as much as people used to. or at least that things in America have changed such that those who haven't believed the myth, perhaps for some time now have a platform to express that disbelief. Mm -hmm. Right. And which maybe they didn't before. And so that is the important takeaway. Right. And then when you look at the criticisms, as Harry, Harry just, you just said, uh, it's been criticized. It's not been received all that well. It's been subject to some
1: criticism. Received all that well in certain quarters. I think it's been, Generally in, in certain quarters by a course, lot of, of academics, course, of and of them, some academics have, have had have tried to reject it. And one example, I, I hesitate to call it an academic critique, but I think that it's important. This this you know you've seen sort of in response attempts to defend American narratives, to defend the American myths, particularly right the myth of or the the idea that the Declaration represents the essential character of the American polity. The sort of chief defense of myth, I guess you've seen the most public one, has come from the 1776 report, and you can see, right, 1619, 1776, which was commissioned by the Trump administration to try to instill a, a patriotic perspective, a patriotic summary of the American Be- narrative. Because
0: Donald Trump's argument, argument, he doesn't make arguments very often. Donald Trump's claim was that... 1619 project was undermining or would undermine in youths a belief in and a care for American principles right now how much Donald Trump embodies a care for and belief in American principles <laughs> of democratic government is is uh, worth disputing but that aside that was his claim and so the goal of the 1776 project was let's reinvigorate the patriotic narrative mm-hmm. so that people believe it again
1: right right um, and if you've been following our argument to this point, you'll see where we identify the problem, right, is that once there becomes this clear discrepancy, this salient discrepancy between people's lived realities and the stories that we tell about ourselves, the myths stop having the hold over us that we would want. And so something like 1776 rather than perhaps embracing and looking at those discrepancies and seeing how can we maybe tell a story that feels more true to us and how can we bring ourselves more into line with those stated principles that we believe in it says well we're just going to paper over them
0: when people disbelieve in the myth you have two options you can either create new myths or you can change the reality that's convinced people that the myth is not believable anymore. Right. So that reality is more in line with the myth being believable. Right. And then people will believe again. You cannot narrate your way out of a disbelief in narration. That's a very good point. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. You, you can't myth your way out of the disbelief. Right. Right. Once the disbelief is there, you either need new narratives that right. accommodate these new realities or these surfaced and identified realities mm-hmm. or you need to change the reality that's caused the disbelief, you can't do what the seventeen. That's that's the problem with the seventeen seventy six report, and why it's not going to be successful at what it's trying to
1: do. It's also a pretty shoddy scholarship. I will also say that. But yes, the the story that it tries to tell is one that in no real way meets the moment, and instead tries to reimpose the you know narrative that perhaps the dominant white class in America has tried to believe for itself for the past. Right. For the past, you know, 70 years since the end of the Second World War. And I think that sort of forms that that to me at least forms a, a core problem with with 1776 project. And I think that it's you know important to recognize the failure to try and reclaim that hold on on American stories. Um, and I think that that's part of part of Goldman's critique as well as like trying to reimpose our old myths sometimes is going to without bringing about any sort of changes that would make them more believable or is the kind of thing that doesn't sits ill in a country that is diverse as ours and with such a diversity of experience so that is that
0: constitutes perhaps the the biggest negative response to the 1619 project this attempt to reinvigorate and restore the myth and that's why it you know won't work so going back to what are your options when myth is not believed? What are our options in America right now? What are our prospects for the future of myth in America? And like, you, like I said, you have two choices, new myths or fix the problems that have eroded belief in the myth. And as we talked about in the first episode, and as we've seen in this with the revolution being a catalyzing moment, for the creation of American myth, Mm -hmm. the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and World War II and all these moments that have proved opportunities to create new myths or change myths. Mm -hmm. War is really internal or external conflict tends to be the only opportunity at which you can generate new myths or change old ones in really profound ways. Right. And so if we want new myths in America, that might be what we're dealing with. We might see, and people have talked about this, the level of polarization and division in mm-hmm. America and our, and our belief of who we are could lead to civil war. And I think it's, that, that sort of prospect is, is maybe exaggerated and, and, and sensationalized by journalists and others who have wrote, written those kinds of pieces. But that is important to be aware of, That if you want new myths, that's generally what you have to endure. Right. And so our other option, bring those realities into line, points to the need for responsible politics, which attempts to address those problems with reality that don't allow the myth to be believed by Mm -hmm. so many people. Right. And that seems to be a much more desirable option, right? I'd rather have... Uh, a shift in our politics like we saw in the 60s there was a great deal of you know disbelief and eroded faith in that american creedal myth and the response was civil rights movement and the response was civil rights acts and voting rights acts mm-hmm. right and perhaps we got a reprieve there and, myth, and 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 belief in the myth was in some ways restored but we're back to a point which m- the the american creedal myth is not believed very well in a lot of places right. and by a lot of people right Clearly. And so that points to the need in the country for for policies that address these things.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, sort of picking up on that on that thread, just to go back very, very briefly, right? To Sam Goldman's book, he poses himself as a skeptic of myth. He sort of lands on this view that maybe we need a sort of more limited version of the creedal myth, and I'm not quite sure how much I'm willing to accept the idea that we can't have that we can't have a narrative that sort of defines us and one that you know we can take some some amount of pride in because I'm just not sure that without some sort of an overarching narrative, uh, a story of who we are that we can have in America. So as long as you want to preserve an America, I think to some extent you do need to have a story that you can tell that people can 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 draw faith in that everyone can kind of identify with. And so that points to the need for policies that sort of I think reduce racial disparities in income and in right you know law enforcement and those kinds of things are the kinds of things that perhaps could bring us more into line with a narrative that embraces right the creedal myth that we are founded in freedom and equality or that freedom and equality are the defining features of American political life.
0: Let's not Let's not try to reinvigorate the myth. Let's try to reinvigorate freedom and equality.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. The basis right. of the myth, the basis not of the, the myth. narrative itself. Um, right. Especially in a society, as we pointed out in the last episode, that views itself as being rooted in in truth and in and in secularity. What you may need is a heavy dose of reality that sort of juices the story. And I think that that's my view is that that's that's just about our our, our best possible option forward yeah for having a society where you know we can where we have these narratives that define us and i think societies do need do need defining narratives and i think that
0: every single one in history has had them so yeah
1: exactly right right and and
0: empirically in, it seems that they need them right
1: yeah and in after nationalism goldman sort of takes to task professors and people like that who think they can you know, reestablish these myths because he thinks it's this sort of stuff. It's not well suited to come out of the academy. And I tend to agree with that. I think it has to come out of a politics of solidarity and decency that says that we can be a a, a nation of freedom and equality, that it's that, you know, anti-black racism, nativism, these may be things that have defined the American past, but a myth that is perhaps forward looking, that, that, that sees itself as 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 looking towards a better future, a faith in the future through policies, through shifts in people's material reality that may make a myth of freedom and equality, a narrative of freedom and equality more believable to us.
0: So with that, that seems to be our best option. And next week, we're going to be talking about the alternative. Right. New myths, new American myths. And what we've seen so far because when confidence is eroded in an old myth, obviously you're gonna see new ones spring up. And so next week we're gonna talk about that and perhaps the future of American
1: myths. Particular, I think, what happens when we become unmoored from our myths and in a society where you have the internet and people can, you know, tell learn, come up with all kinds of different stories about reality, what happens if you don't have some sort of basic foundational right. consensus on 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 who we are?
0: Yeah. So That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing to Spectacles in Conversation for more episodes of Bird's Eye and Reflections. And if you'd like to hear every article of Focus and Insight read aloud, you can subscribe to Spectacles out loud. There's a link in the show notes. If you'd like to make a comment about this episode, there'll also be a link to our website in the show notes where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.